Okay, let's get started. So, we are actually, you are getting two series for the price of one today. So, uh, with no extra charge, imagine that. Um, we're continuing with the eight essential elements of the Biblical Christian Gospel series. You will note that in Roman numeral one there, our, the element zero was introductory for about four weeks, and then all eight of the elements are listed there. You might recall that we got through six of the elements in about 75 weeks, or 75 messages, and then I decided to review, which may or may not have been the great, greatest idea, but I decided to review before we went on to number seven and eight. So we did 12 weeks of review, which is mentioned there in Roman numeral two on your page. And then four and five messages ago, we reviewed element seven, or we actually previewed element seven, and we previewed element eight, uh, one, two, and three messages ago. And so now I'm going to go back and do element seven for quite a while, and then eventually we're going to do element eight for quite a while. And we should finish up the series somewhere between 120 and 150 messages. So... Uh, Hopefully we'll uh, get there by fall. I'm actually considering uh, starting uh, to do an optional uh, extra where I do some of the teachings on Sundays at 2 o'clock so that um, I can get through the series because I really want to start a, the Kingdom of God series this fall in September when the Wright State students are back and our campus ministries are, are going. So by mid-September... I hope to be done with this series, even if I have to record some of them on Sunday afternoons for an audience of three or four people or whoever wants to come, uh, especially because if you'll notice the second thing on your page is that it says baptized in the Holy Spirit 2017 version. So because in receiving Jesus Christ, which is element seven, there are five steps that people are supposed to take. In the New Testament, this was the first week of being a Christian. In our day and age, I would say most Christians in America, probably well over 90%, have taken two of these five steps in their entire Christian life. Many of the Christians don't know that steps three and four even exist. And uh, it's hard to enter into something that you're completely unaware of. So um, that's just kind of the nature of our both uh, naturalistic, skeptical age that's anti-supernatural and our reduce the message uh, uh, age. So many, many Christians don't really know that step three called being baptized in the Holy Spirit, step four, deliverance from demons and, and healings spiritually, emotionally, physically uh, are, are part and normal of the Christian life and that you should experience some of those things early in your Christian life. So, uh, almost everyone needs some deliverance from demons. Uh, the more wild of a lifestyle, the more sinful of a lifestyle you live, uh, the, the more tendency there is to have demonic spirits, or the more dysfunctional of a family you came from. Uh, so there are certain kinds of sins, like unforgiveness and bitterness, uh, sexual immorality, uh, any kind of use of drugs, that let more demons in than other things do. 
and therefore cause more emotional and mental problems than other things do. Those three in particular, uh, really four, pri any kind of pride or rebellion where you're kind of autonomous and do your own thing and you're not that able to take correction or advice, you, you know, you're a little bit rebellious and that sort of thing, proudful. Any kind of unforgiveness or bitterness, any kind of sexual immorality, even pornography, fornication, whatever you want to talk about, uh, and any kind of uh, use of, of uh, mind-altering drugs will tend to, tend to let a, a lot of demonic influence into your life. But even people who have not done those things tend to need some deliverance. So we will... When we, uh, what we're going to be actually doing now is we're going to go through the baptism in the Spirit more thoroughly than we have before, and then we're going to do a whole unit uh, on deliverance and the reality of demons, and you know, because most people uh, are kind of stuck in one of two wrong places when it comes to demons. Either they don't realize that a Christian can have a demon, and sometimes they don't even realize there are demons and how spiritual the mental and emotional problems they have are. Uh, they just think that, they're, that they have emotional or psychological problems when, in fact, they have demonic problems. Or uh, often when people come to realize that's true, then uh, the enemy tries to come to a place where they're afraid of that realm. And there's nothing to be afraid of. Jesus cast out demons with a word, and he gave the same authority to all his followers. Um, you know, there, it is a legal kingdom, so you do have to meet certain legal requirements to cast out demons. As we often say, you can't get delivered from your friends. If you're still in agreement with the Spirit, you can't get it cast out and keep it out. So... We will be getting into that. What I'm going to try to do is I don't know for sure how many messages we're going to do on the baptism in the Spirit. We've had a four-part series up till now. We're going to keep that series. But I'm going to expand and complete that series a lot more. So just today, we're going to do one part of what was chapter one of that series is going to be chapter one of this new series on the Holy Spirit. So what was chapter one of, of the old series is going to be three chapters now. And so uh, let's get into that. So that would be, if you look down at point C on your front page of the first five steps, the third one is called baptizing the Holy Spirit. That the phrase baptizing the Holy Spirit appears in the New Testament seven times. It's always in a verb form. So some people will object to the use of the noun or adjective, baptism in the Spirit. But if you... But if you understand grammar, if you get baptized in the Spirit and you want to call it something, then it would be the baptism in the Holy Spirit. So, uh, although the New Testament always uses it in a verb form. Now, six of the, of the usages have to do with John the Baptist saying, uh, in all four Gospels and then twice in the book of Acts, it recounts John the Baptist saying that Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. Uh, we had Friday night, we had a team of people pray for people to get baptized in the Spirit. And three new people got baptized in the Spirit Friday night, including John Luke was the third one. So, uh, is Taylor Balmy here? Yeah, she'll probably be here at 1030. She was the second one. And then um, Jasmine, who's home for now home for spring break, was the first one. 
Jasmine got baptized in the Spirit just when we were singing songs before we uh, even started praying. <laughs> Which is, uh, God does all the time. My wife, that's how it happened to my wife as well. Back, way back in 1971, some of you think that was like when Homo sapiens were first starting to walk erect and the Earth's crust was still cooling and things. But uh, <laughs> it was actually relatively modern times, believe it or not. But uh, anyway, so... Uh, 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5 lists a whole lot of characteristics of a declining culture where Christianity is becoming ineffective. And uh, that's happened many times in history. This, it isn't specifically about the end times, except for the fact that in Acts 2, Peter says this is the last days. We started a period of time called the last days on the day of Pentecost. And we are still, if people say, do you believe we're in the last days? I say, of course. We've been in the last days since Acts chapter 2. Uh, <laughs> so we're now at, at uh, right, right about 13 years shy of 2,000 years in the last days. So various cultures become more influenced when the church is doing its job and the church is uh, complete and and. The message is, and the lifestyle is congruent, and the church is really being the salt of the earth. A society can become more, progressively more Christianized. When the church is off base and missing elements and so forth, a society becomes more ungodly. That's just and that's very clear from many passages in Scripture, and we happen to be living in that sort of time. And one of the elements that's always happening in the church, whenever a society is becoming more ungodly, is the Christians will hold to forms of godliness, but they'll deny the power thereof. And it goes so far as to say, avoid such men as these. Now, I don't think that means that we don't minister to people like that. I don't think it means we don't help them come to Christ and so forth. But I don't think we really want to fellowship with people like that in terms of some kind of committed Christian body or something like that. If there's, if there's not the power of the cross, if there's a diminished gospel, if there's not ongoing fruit, if, you know, whatever's born of God overcomes the world, it's, if something's still got the activity of God in it, there will be new people being added. The Lord will add to their number day by day, those who are being saved. Uh, there will be uh, the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, if the forms of what you're doing and the message of what you're doing and the lifestyle of what you're doing is pleasing to God. There will be a presence of the Holy Spirit that does wonderful things for people that no humans can actually do. And uh, I, by the way, that I just want to keep reminding us, if you have not been coming on Friday nights, the uh, pe more people are coming on Friday nights, the meeting is growing, uh, more people are getting there, we're getting closer to starting on time, <laughs> more people... And the, and the power of the Spirit has just been awesome. More people are stepping out in spiritual gifts, more presence of God, and lots of people are having really good things happen to them. Um, you probably won't ever be able to transition into that atmosphere that Christians are supposed to live in where your life is blessed by God unless you're in the Holy Spirit quite frequently. And for most Christians, until you get to a certain level of breakthrough, it's pretty hard to be in the spirit to that kind of level just by attending a church once a week on Sunday mornings, uh, even if they have pretty anointed worship. Uh, I would really encourage you to take advantage of some kind of corporate worship 
try to, you know, three or more times a week until you get to the kind of level of anointing where you can know how to keep yourself there. So all that's no extra charge. So uh, Luke 24 and Acts 1, in both cases, Jesus told them not to leave Jerusalem, not to go out and start their worldwide ministry until they received power from on high, and he defined that in Acts 1, 4, and 5 as being baptized in the Holy Spirit. And we'll look at that in some detail in future lessons, uh, probably in what used to be chapter 3 of this series. I guess it'll probably be around chapter 7 or 8 now, something like that. We'll see. Um, we're going to add a bunch of stuff that we don't have in the other series, like I'm going to do a whole teaching on the three major views of the person and ministry of the Holy Spirit in our in modern times, and uh, the cessationist view, the the compromised middle, what they call the third way view, and, and the pro-charismatic view. We're going to study all three of those and explain why the pro-charismatic view is actually scriptural and so forth. So flip over. Today we're going to get started on step three called being baptized in the Holy Spirit. Remember that steps two, three, four, and five uh, should follow uh, receiving Jesus Christ. Now, in the case of step two, we do believe, uh, you know, we teach on both infant baptism and what's called believer's baptism in this church. And But we do not believe in that infant baptism regenerates you. Uh, that uh, The Roman Catholics believe that. Uh, Eastern Orthodox believe that. No Protestant group who ever did in, infant baptism ever believed that. Um, however, the vast majority of Christians have practiced that throughout the centuries. And so to, to, to just dismiss something that the vast majority of Christians throughout the centuries thought was scriptural just because you haven't really studied it out, as we think is a little bit nonsense. But um, I was a believer's baptism guy for about 40 years. Uh, upon further study, I, I switched positions. We're happy with whatever position you are in, uh, as long as you uh, can build on that. So um, that's, you know, we're not going to fight or divide over those kinds of things. Uh, step five, becoming part of a New Testament lifestyle. You actually start to do that while you're being converted. You know, most people who come to Christ are coming to a church and touching the presence of the Spirit while they're being drawn into the kingdom quite regularly. And they might uh, ideally be in a at least weekly investigative Bible study with someone who's qualified to guide them through the gospel. And they're hopefully reading the Word quite a bit. One of the things I've noticed, there's quite a few of you that I was involved in, you're coming to Christ. And one of the things I always tried to do early on in those, when I start meeting with someone and discipling them and trying to get them started, is I try to get you on a program where you're reading the whole Bible. And the people who do that always grow way faster because God can show you so much if you just read his word. So... Uh, Terry might remember we met every week for like a year as you were coming to Christ. But he started in on Matthew 1, and before I knew it, he was on his second time through the New Testament, and then he read the Old Testament, and he was always working that as we as we had these meetings and as he came to Christ. So lots of you have experienced that. If you meet with people who aren't reading the Word and so forth, you just don't get as far. 
Uh, it doesn't mean you give up on them, but you just aren't going to get as far. So, all right, so let's get into this. Baptizing the Holy Spirit uh, is something that really you have to have received Christ to receive. It's a second encounter with the Holy Spirit. You do receive the Holy Spirit at conversion. We covered that when we did element six of this series, Receiving Jesus Christ in some detail. However, uh, if you, you know, there's kind of a thinking today where, well, we got it since we received the Holy Spirit when we were converted, we got all there is of the Holy Spirit. And I always say, if you have it all, let's see it all. If, uh, if you're... If your lifestyle in the Spirit doesn't much look like Jesus and the disciples in in the Gospels or the disciples in the book of Acts, then you really haven't received all there is to receive of the Holy Spirit. Right? So even getting baptized in the Spirit is a stepping stone toward a much deeper life you're supposed to live in the reality and power and filling of the Spirit all the time. Okay, so let's uh, let's get into this Holy Spirit series. Today we're going to cover uh, something that's one of the subpoints in the old series under Chapter One: the Person of the Holy Spirit. And so I've titled this uh, "Who is the Holy Spirit?" In other words, the the person of the Holy Spirit. And one of the subpoints in that is three word pictures of the Holy Spirit, but I usually give people eight off the top of my head. So I just decided we will look at eight word pictures of the Holy Spirit in the scripture just to start with. Because what I try to do in the first several teachings in this series is I try to help you understand why you need to biblically know a lot more about the Holy Spirit and why you need to experientially, concretely uh, be baptized in the Holy Spirit and learn to be filled and filled and filled and refilled and grow in the amount and power of the anointing of the Holy Spirit you carry. Okay, because the kingdom of God is in the Holy Spirit. You will be as effective in ministry as the anointing you carry and can impart. Now, I'm all for, like, we try to get everyone to study the three major school historical schools of thought of biblical counseling. We try to get people to take their understanding of the gospel way deeper. So when they, and I'm all for all that kind of stuff. But if, if you don't have the power of the Spirit when you're imparting these things, the letter kills and the Spirit gives life. It's as simple as that. If you don't carry much anointing, it won't matter how correct you are. Now, I'm not trying to say, please don't hear me say, that the anointing will, uh, will overcome being wrong about so many things as so many charismatics try to live in that's not a good option either. But, so what I want to do with these word pictures is help you see the, the Bible communicates a lot of different kinds of ways. First of all, it's a history book. What we've done in, in, since we began to reduce the Christian message in what was called the fundamentalist modernist controversy is the modernists have uh, developed a doctrine called the literal interpretation of Scripture, and they've rejected the literary interpretation of Scripture that Martin Luther and all the ancient church fathers uh, endorsed and so forth. So the literal idea is that we can only take what's called the didactic parts of Scripture. 
uh, which you find mostly in the epistles, in Proverbs, and a, a few didactic statements scattered throughout the historical books and in the prophets and so forth. And so if the Bible doesn't, isn't saying like, thou shalt not, or thou shalt, or, or this is the nature of this theolo theological truth or whatever, that's the only stuff we can believe. We can't really get anything out of the historical counts. But the problem is the first 17 books of the Old Testament are historical, and the first five books of the New Testament are historical. And there's a reason why all the ancient scribes put them in that order, because our God is a God of history. And he stands outside and above time, and he had an eternal purpose and decree, and he created human beings in a time-space continuum for a predetermined plan. And it's then you'll get the most about God in the history. And in the history, he uses all kinds of literary devices like foreshadowings and types and, and word pictures. And those in a lot of ways, round out the didactic parts to help you get a fuller picture. So we're going to talk a lot of, in you know, chapter 3 of this series, we're going to talk about the ministry of the Holy Spirit on behalf of the Father and the Son. But uh, these word pictures will tell you a lot about the ministry of the Holy Spirit and give you a lot more... Uh, satisfying of an encounter with, with, with who he is and what he does. Hopefully you get that. So, now, the Holy Spirit came to bear witness of Christ, we're going to see when we get it. So, um, there, while there are probably at least a hundred good word pictures of Christ in the Scripture, there are less of the Holy Spirit, not because he's any less important like modern Christians think, but modern Christians don't just step back enough from the Bible and analyze it as a whole. The, the Holy Spirit came on behalf of the Father and the Son. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. And he came to glorify the Father and the Son. And so when he wrote, he's the writer of the scriptures. And he focuses all attention on the Son and the Son giving glory to the Father. <laughs> right? So... Uh, one of the reasons, we'll cover this more in an upcoming message when we look at the three different versions of the Holy Spirit in our day and age. One of the reasons people miss the Holy Spirit in our day and age is because the incredible layers of unbelief, anti-supernatural, uh, natural-mindedness in our culture, and the natural mind cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God. But another reason is because we just don't study Scripture thoroughly enough to understand that the Holy Spirit doesn't talk about himself as much, but that may, doesn't make him any less important. He is the one who wrote the Scripture, as the Scripture tells us. And I don't know about you, but if I wanted to really understand a book, I wouldn't just take a liter literature class at Wright State University from some uh, self-congratulating pompous professor if I could spend time with the author. <laughs> like, so what were you trying to say in this book? <laughs> he probably has better theories than the literature professor does. All right? So let's uh, get into this. Section A of this series I call the big picture or the bigger picture. Why do we need a greater knowledge and experience? Chapter 1, Who is the Holy Spirit? We'll look at who is the Holy Spirit be next week. Today, eight biblical word pictures of the Holy Spirit. The first one is he's depicted as a dove for a number of reasons. 
Doves in ancient times were white or gray, but in either case, they were considered pure. White is often a color associated with purity in many places in Scripture, Revelation 19, etc. Secondly, we even to this day still talk about the hawks versus the doves. The hawks are wanting to go to war. That's less and less popular in our culture. Uh, <laughs> but uh, the doves, they, go, they, they want peace. Right? And the Holy Spirit is the source of the peace that passes all understanding. He doesn't just bring you into a kind of peace that's uh, like in Eastern religions where your mind is empty and therefore open all kinds of demonic influences because you're meditating on sort of nothing, or which you often do with drugs and so forth. But he brings you into a place where your mind is sharp, focused, active, active, and really absent in conflict. He is uh, doves are considered gentleness or gentle. James three thirteen talks about the wisdom, the gentleness of wisdom. Psalm Second Samuel twenty two thirty six and and Psalm eighteen thirty five says, "Thy gentleness has made me great." Doves have nine feathers on each wing. There are nine fruits of the Holy Spirit listed in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. And there are nine gifts of the Holy Spirit listed in 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 11. That's not accidental. Nothing in the scripture is accidental. So uh, doves are one of the primary uh, symbols of the Holy Spirit. And in both Matthew 3 and Luke 3 and John 1, when Jesus presents himself for baptism in water from John the Baptist, although he was born of the Holy Spirit, just like you receive the Holy Spirit in regeneration, he had a second encounter with the Holy Spirit to prepare him to be led into the wilderness to prepare him for ministry. And when you get baptized in the Holy Spirit, it's because you are called into, as a Christian, the worldwide mission of Christ and the three ministries that all Christians have to minister to God through worship, intercessory prayer, spiritual warfare, and prayers of petition and thanksgiving and so forth, and the study of Scripture and become the kind of priest, as they were in the Old Testament, who knew Scripture so well that you can teach the world around you about the Scriptures and so forth. Every Christian is called to that kind of priesthood. And that's your first ministry is to God. Secondly, you're called to have a ministry to one another, beginning with your family and the local body that you're committed to. And as far as it depends on you, you're, you uh, serve other Christians whenever you have the opportunity. So... One of the things that happened in this encounter when the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus like a dove, the Father spoke audibly and said, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Many of you know that in the Hebrew world, when a son got to a place where his father could trust him in business and entrust all the power and authority and finances of the family's business to the son, you know, like when you can give your son the credit card with a $30,000 limit and you know he won't blow it. <laughs> you know, uh, the father would say in the marketplace, this is my beloved son 
in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. He can now transact business for the family the way I transact business. And Jesus began to do the works of the Father. After that, he began to heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, make disciples, proclaim the gospel to the poor, and all the things the Father had sent him to do. He said, like he had prophesied to his parents at the age of 12, didn't you know I had to be about my father's business? And he's like, are you kidding me? No, I'm just kidding. I, uh, Jesus was never as sarcastic as me, thankfully. <laughs> didn't, you, didn't you know I had to be about the Father's business? You know, you know when they told him that he, why, he, they were worried that he was going towards Jerusalem, and they said, don't you know that like Herod and Pontius and the, and, uh, the Sanhedrin, they're all looking for you? He goes, go tell that fox that today and tomorrow I cast out demons, and the third day I reach my goals. I'm coming for him. <laughs> you know? It's amazing how much, uh, uh, by the way, I would really encourage you to seek a kind of relationship with God where he drives all fears out of your life. Fear is a, uh, can be a terribly crippling thing. And the one who fears is not perfected in love because first love casts out all fears. Find Focus on how much he loves you and love him back. And the Holy Spirit will show you the love of God. Romans 5 says that the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who indwells us. The more you experience God's love, it will chase fears from your life. That's not any condemnation if you struggle with fear. It's just where that's where the answer lies. Romans 8, 14 through 17, put it in the context of the whole chapter, but it basically says the Holy Spirit bears witness to our spirit that we're sons of God. When you get baptized in the Spirit, you have a very similar experience to what Jesus did, where he says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. If you continue to walk in obedience to, to God, and, and you know, for instance, if you're a grumbler or complainer, you become a thanksgiving contentment uh, person. If you're... Uh, Lacking in spiritual disciplines, you you know you get those where God wants you. If you um, don't value the Lord's day enough, or you cheat on your tithes, or whatever, as you start to conform your life to following Christ, He will put more of the Spirit on your life, and that will affect everything from uh, the favor that's on you at your job to uh, how good your marriage goes to uh, what kind of problems your kids are struggling with. The most important uh, defense to have around you is a powerful sense of God's presence. The enemy uh, doesn't like the, the presence of the Holy Spirit. He really doesn't. If you remember when Jesus came in filled with the Holy Spirit, demons had a tendency to freak out. So Jesus gets baptized in the Holy Spirit, and God says, this is my beloved son. Secondly, the, the Holy Spirit is depicted as a servant. Read the whole chapter of Genesis 24 in an allegory, typical sense, and you'll see that the Genesis 24 is the whole Bible in one chapter. Because Abraham, who's a type of God the Father, wants a bride for his son Isaac. And we are, of course, in the Bible, the bride of Christ. People of God were the, were the bride of, of God, even in the Old Testament. That's what Hosea is about and other 
places, right? God wants a spotless, pure bride. And so the Father gets his servant, who is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And that shows the humility of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit wrote the story. And servants in the ancient world had no name nor genealogy. That's why when Mark presents Jesus as the person who came to give his life and to serve, Mark is the only gospel with no genealogy because Mark presents Jesus as the servant. Whereas Matthew presents Jesus as the son of Abraham and the son of David, so the genealogy goes back through David to Abraham. And Luke presents Jesus as the Savior of all mankind, and therefore, and he, Jesus calls himself the Ben-Adam, son of Adam, 34 to 38 times in Luke, and Luke's genealogy goes back to Adam. And John came to emphasize the deity of Christ. And so John's genealogy goes back to, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word is God. That's a genealogy. And that eternal Word became flesh and dwelt among us. All four of the Gospels have an exact approach to genealogy to give you what the, the Gospels emphasizing about Jesus. So the, in this case, the Holy Spirit is trying to say, I came to do what the Father eternally uh, purposed to do, which was to get a people for his son who would be the son's bride. And he says, put your hand under my thigh. We don't have any people too young here, which actually was a covenantal thing. Put your hand under my private parts is what it actually means. Because he was saying, I'm entrusting the entire future life to you. Everything about the eternal purposes of God are now in the servant's hands. If he fails in his mission, then, then everything the Bible prophesies would not come true. Course, God ordained that that wasn't going to happen because the covenant purposes of God were coming through Abraham to Isaac to Jacob uh, to Judah on down to Christ. So that the servant failed in the message, in the mission to get the, a bride for Isaac, the purposes of God were done forever. So he says, Put your hands on my private parts. I'm saying that the whole issue of my life. Is in your hands. And he says, Do not take a bride from the daughters of Canaan. She's got to be a covenant woman. Speaking of the fact that God has to cause us to be regenerated and then restored and sanctified and to become holy, pure, spotless member of God's household. There aren't going to be any harlots in the kingdom. There aren't going to be double-minded people in the presence of God. Incomplete obedience is disobedience, and God is coming after the disobedience in your life to get it out. He's coming to set you free because you were created to love him, adore him, and do his will. You know, there was an old movie called Princess Bride that the kids used to like. 
and the what was the guy his name Wesley or something <laughs> Wesley and he goes as you wish so like what God is trying to do is put you in the in the you know the bride saying Lord as you wish you know we pray for all these things that we wish thy kingdom come thy will be done quit praying for what you wish and say, Lord, what do you wish? As you wish. Right? So the servant takes all these gifts, speaking of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, to a faraway land, speaking of the fact that the Father sent the Son, and when he ascended, he poured uh, Pentecost out, not starting in Jerusalem, but there were 17 nations symbolizing the whole world and the eventual fulfilling of the uh, whole world to be filled with the gospel of the kingdom of God and the temple of the Holy Spirit. And the servant went to a faraway land to get the bride. And then there's the ring represents covenant. And there's all kind of stuff there. The whole Bible, one chapter. It's beautiful. If you're not crying by the end of it, read it again because you probably didn't get that enough out of it. So, thirdly, the advocate. The the newer translations translate that helper. All the best newer translations do. Uh, some of the dynamic equivalents translate it advocate. The older translations that were what was called literal equivalents, like King James, Young's Literal, Wycliffe, and Geneva, translated comforter. Um, if you understand the use of that word in the, in the 15th, 16th, 17th centuries, then it it's a good translation. It doesn't mean that anymore, so it's not really a good translation to people born after 1800, which is most people in this room. I, I was born in the 17th no. <laughs> Not, not, I'm not really that old. I know you think I am, but um, uh, RSV, which is historically important uh, translation, calls counselor. Some of you might like the amplified, and there's an amplified classic version and an amplified version. It's two amplifieds now, but they both say helper, comforter, advocate, intercessor, counselor, strengthener, and standby. Because the Greek word parakletos uh, means one called alongside to help. In fact, this. One called us alongside to help, comforter, advocate, intercessor, is the New American Standard Version's text note. Um, in ancient Greece, the parakletos was your attorney. And you can be dead right when you go to court, but if you don't have an attorney who knows the law and the ways of the court, you'll lose. The parakletos goes with you, to represent the Father and the Son, and to advocate for them as you walk, and keep you in the center of their person and will, and which keeps you in the center of their power and blessing. He's So anytime you see a word that, that different English translations translate several ways, it's always a clue that none of the English words are quite enough and that it's worth actually studying that word a little bit more. Because helper's good, but it's just not enough. And the best English translations today say helper. Uh, comforter was good 
four centuries ago, but it's not accurate enough today. Advocate is actually probably better in some of the, uh, ironically, the dynamic uh, translations, equivalence translations use advocate. Uh, counselor is a good one, especially the, you know, because you call your attorney account, your, your counselor, right, counselor? Uh, <laughs> so uh, John 14 through 16, Jesus at the Last Supper knows he's going to be with the Father. He says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. In my Father's family, there's many dwelling places. has nothing to do with heaven. That would be to rip the verses out of their context. There's not going to be a lot of mansions in heaven or whatever. He's saying, in the ongoing family of God on the earth, there's a lot of places to fit in and to belong. And I'm going to send the Holy Spirit so you can fit in and belong. The more of the Holy Spirit you have, the more you'll sense you belong. And the more you actually will function in a way that you belong. John 14, 15, and 16, we'll be going in much greater detail, but over and over and over, it says uh, that the Holy Spirit will testify of Jesus, bring into our remembrance all the things he says, and it calls him the parakletos. It also calls him, every, in every one of those verses, the spirit of truth. Because lots of other spirits, guess what a demon is? A spirit of lying. Right? Think about that the next time you're tempted to tell a lie. Whose side are you on? Okay. Number four, water. Living water, clouds. Clouds are made of water and a little dust. In John 4, 10, 11, well, first, John 7, he says that it, whoever believes in me, out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. He's not talking about himself. It says very clearly, this he said concerning the Holy Spirit, who those who believed in him were going to receive. They hadn't yet received it because he hadn't yet been glorified, and they received it after his glorification at Pentecost. And the Holy Spirit will cause rivers of living water. Now, all through evangelicalism today, when you read verses about living water, you're taught to interpret that as Jesus. But can look at John 4 with the woman at the well more closely, which I have listed right above there. Study, you know, I can't fit all these on the scripture, so take, I hope people take these home and study them again. If you put two more hours in each of these messages, you would probably grow about 10 times quicker. They're worth your getting into. So look up the scriptures that we don't have room to print out and, and think about them, study about them, and, and study into them. So as uh, Jesus says to the woman at the well, if you knew who I was and who the, what the gift of God is, you would have asked me and I would have given you living water. And he's not talking about giving you himself because Jesus is the baptizer in the Holy Spirit. And he's telling her, I would give you my spirit. Because, you know, one of the, you know, the reason Jasmine got baptized in the Holy Spirit when we were just singing songs to the Lord, because the Lord is the baptizer in the spirit, and he can do that if he wants. <laughs> you know, he doesn't have to ask our permission. I've never had God say, like, I, I really bless that person. Is that okay with you? <laughs> you know, like, yes, sir. <laughs> I'm good. 
So uh, that's huge. Jesus is saying to the woman, you know, I would, I'll give you my spirit. Jude 12 talks about hidden reefs at your love feast. It's, I don't want to preach on Jude because you'll never come back to the church. I could just read the book and never want to be offended. It's, <laughs> Jude's a very intense book. <laughs> you should read it regularly. It'll, uh, if that doesn't grant you repentance, nothing will. So he calls the, these particular uh, Christians shepherds feeding themselves. I use the ESV here because uh, uh, New American Standard says caring for themselves, but the Greek word is poimen that we get shepherd from. And it's actually being, it's actually people who aren't having, that aren't p- part of a covenant local church, that nobody's shepherding them. They're shepherding themselves. They're not getting, meeting with any disciple or, or trying to work on and coming under any kind of counsel or authority as a way of life. They're doing their own thing, even though they're a Christian and baptized in the Spirit. Hello, let me just tell you, it would not be an exaggeration to say somewhere between 97 and 99% of baptized in the Spirit American Christians live right there. They are shepherding themselves. They wouldn't want to be under spiritual authority because they wouldn't trust God. To be under spiritual authority, you have to trust God. They wouldn't want to do that. And he calls them waterless clouds which is saying they have the Spirit, but they, it's dried up. So many people I know have had great experiences with the baptism in the Spirit and said this is the best sense of God's presence and power and so forth I've ever felt, and then they haven't pushed into a lifestyle where they're going to live there. I can't get along for any days without the power of the Holy Spirit. I just can't. I can't even function. I'm an addict. I'm addicted to Jesus by the Spirit. I hope you are. Because if you're not, then you're trying to lean on your own understanding and your own power in all kind of other spirits. Swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn. One of the things you need to stand back and say, like, listen, if you're one, two, or three years old in the Lord and you haven't led that many people to Christ and you're not flowing in the Spirit that regularly, and you're not really understanding Scripture in detail and that kind of thing, and you're not regularly helping people break through, that's probably okay as long as you're laying all the foundations to be there. But if you start getting to be three, four, five years old in the Lord, and ten years old in the Lord, and and that's not your lifestyle, that's a problem. That's a real big problem. It should be a problem that causes you to cry out to God and make some big changes. And change everything, your study habits, who you fellowship with, whatever it takes. Get to a place where you, because in the natural, once you get to a certain age, you have to take steps not to be fruitful. Right? Right? Now, hopefully we all know the best way to not be fruitful is if you're not married, you know, walk with God holy. Then you won't be fruitful in, the, in that sense. But you might be very fruitful in, in multiplying the life of Christ into others. 
which he has called every Christian to do. John 15, 8, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. That's the test of whether you're really a disciple or not. How regularly the disciples you're discipling, don't not that how often they get inner healing or deliverance, how often they become full-out uh, fruitful disciples of Jesus. We got to move on. Fire, fire pure. I'm just, I'm not going to be able to read all the verses. Fires purifies, right? Fire cleanses, and fire spreads fastly, representing passion. If you're not on fire for God, we even use that phrase, you know, most Christians do. Like, is he on fire for God? If you're not on fire for God, get more filled with the Holy Spirit. You can't, you can't have it both ways. If you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you'll be passionate for God. In fact, you should have to be counseled somewhat regularly not to be too extreme, like, Quit tithing 50%. You probably need to cut back so you can take care of your financial obligations. And, and you know, don't be sharing the gospel when you're supposed to be at work. <laughs> don't read the Bible all night. Get some sleep. <laughs> How many of us really have to be cautioned not to be so radical about Jesus? Occasionally, I like people like that. It's, but... But, you know, like they're one in every 30 or something. Don't read the Bible so much. Clean the bathroom. All right. <laughs> Do your homework, something, whatever, you know. Uh, oil. Oil was used to anoint. that. Uh, those two accounts are the anointing of, of course, of Saul, when Samuel anointed first Saul, then David. Uh, Jesus read from Isaiah 61 when in his first announcement of who he was in the synagogues and so forth in the oil of what happened at Pentecost is Jesus ascended and he was glorified and when he was glorified that means he was coronated he he sat at the father's right hand and God if you don't understand this God's very into covenant ceremonies all covenants in the Bible have covenant ceremonies. That's why we have the Lord's Supper. That's why we have water baptism. That's why we have the Lord's Day and why it's such a big sin to miss the Lord's Day. Because you're supposed to renew the covenant at the start of every week as a Christian. That It's a big deal to miss the Lord's Day. A big deal. The only reason you should ever miss the Lord's Day is if you're going to make us all sick. That's my job. I teach every Sunday morning to make you all sick. No. <laughs> so, uh, so you, you know, if you're going to make us sick, you can stay home. That's about it. Oil is when, you know, it talks about the oil coming down upon the beard and the robe, Aaron's robe and so forth. When Jesus, when God poured the anointing oil of the Holy Spirit on King Jesus, like Samuel had done with Saul and David, that oil started to flow, and it flowed down his beard, down his robes, soothing his wounds, and into the earth below. It was called the day of Pentecost. And that oil will flow until he stops being king, which is forever and ever and ever. 
And even when we're in heaven, that oil will be flowing into us so that our worship and adoration of, of the King of Kings will go to greater and greater depths. That'll be a meeting. Get in on that Friday night. Wine. A lot of us have good experience with wine. Uh, in the day of Pentecost, they were accused of drinking cheap wine. I wish I had time to read Genesis 27, all about wine. Uh, Luke, when Jesus says new wine, wineskin, so forth. When he, what Jesus is saying is this. Well, here's what happens with religion. He says, if anyone has drank old wine, they won't want new. Because they'll say the old is good enough. See, lots of people like where they've been and where they're at. And the going to the next step God's called you to is tough because it requires you to drink new wine. And the new wine is not always aged as well, and it's not always smooth, and it has more impurities. And there's always, you know, some difficulty getting to know new people and getting involved in a new mission and getting involved in a new anointing and, and so forth. It's not always pleasant all the time. But so many people miss the kingdom because they say, oh, old wine is good enough. It's gotten stagnant. It's not producing new fruit. It's not uh, contained in the right kinds of vessels. Because when he's talking about you know, new wine and vessels and so forth, he's talking about church structures, church government, church mission, church way of life. That's the exact thing he's talking about. And he's saying... You know, the Pharisees don't want what I'm doing because I'm building a new community of Christians and so forth, and they want to keep doing it the way they, they think they're inherited from Moses, which, in fact, they had twisted and distorted so much they weren't doing what Moses wanted anymore either. That's the whole context. Breath, wind, day of Pentecost, violent rushing wind, the Greek word pneuma, pneumatos means wind. Um, you know, tongues of fire go with the wind. Uh, wind makes the fire spread more passionately and faster. You want to, <laughs> at lunch today, if you want to hear a funny story about how I almost burned down the woods around my family's house when I was a kid because the fire we had started had too much wind come up, that it will illustrate the point of the Holy Spirit being fire and wind, wind. And uh, fortunately, we... At the last second, we're able to save the woods. But uh, so that I would be here today instead of still serving my time in jail. All right, that's enough for uh, <laughs> for today. And uh, we're 10 minutes past, 11 minutes past the time. So please uh, do your best to get back up here and get ready to start as soon as you can.